Yeah, another week goes by, and we are here on KLGN, or KGLN. Oh, jeez, I'm starting off great. And KNZZ, all over the place, 1100, 92.7, 980, and 101.3, just depending on where you're at. And, of course, you can catch us on the Internet pretty much everywhere, except probably China and North Korea. Pretty sure not a getting in there. I don't even have to check on that. And, of course, you can download our uh, shows as podcasts by going pretty much anywhere. You know, iTunes, Podbeam, uh, I, yeah, I mean, actually, uh, Amazon, all those kinds of places. It's surprising to me. If, By the way, I put up, finally, as I mentioned last week, I put up some bonus content. I took some of the ideas that you guys have been sending to me about some stuff, and one of the things that I found interesting was a question I got a couple of times uh, in emails. You know, you can email me, too. It's at Rick Wagner, one simple, long word, no points or dots or apostrophes, just Rick Wagner at mail.com, and, you know, parallels between other societies and civilizations, namely historical, and the kinds of things that are going on in our country. And you know, what what are the cracks that you start seeing in a society and a civilization? It looks like it's going to fracture at some point. It doesn't mean it will. And many times, and I like to point this out, they've gotten pretty bad in some other civilizations, but they've managed to come along with the right person at the right time, and pull themselves back together again. I would say that is the exception rather than the rule, but it's still largely possible. So I put that up as a, I don't know, it's about 15 minutes of uh, podcast uh, extra that you can go to. Just uh, call it up up there. It's uh, You can get to our website, too, at the rickwagnershow.com, where we have a lot of stories up there, some of which we'll talk about today if we have a minute. And I wanted to start off the show today to talk a little bit about Trump on CNN. Now, of course... You've been hearing a lot about that, but I wanted to take it from a little different angle like we do here. And what he said and what was going on in the actual show, especially if you watched any of it, we need to, don't need to beat that to death. It was terrible in the sense that Trump was just in an argument the entire time with uh, that Caitlin Collins, the host, who you may remember. This is, he was very brave in this. She was the one. Remember when they had to take the microphone away from a woman during one of the press conferences because she wouldn't stop talking, wouldn't give the mic away? That was her. So the chances of her changing her opinion about Trump uh, was pretty narrow, I think. And so he knew what he was going to get into. So a lot of it was just watching two people have an argument. And the first 20 minutes or so was just them laying into him, all his controversies, this and that. And remember, this was billed as a town hall, not as a mean-spirited interview. It was supposed to be a town hall. A town hall is the opportunity for people from the audience in a community, and this was in New Hampshire, uh, to ask the candidate questions. And the reporter there is a moderator, sometimes asks the questions or may push back a little bit. But this was just an argument. It reminds me of an old Monty Python sketch, you know, where people would come in and pay to have someone argue with them. I mean, that's kind of what was happening here. But Trump did a pretty good job. Uh, and it was good for CNN. That time slot, that 8 p.m. time slot in uh, Eastern Daylight Time, is, of course, the same time that Tucker used to be on Fox. Now, Fox managed to pull, I think I looked at, maybe 1.5 million viewers, which is less than half of what Tucker pulled pretty much every night. And the CNN town hall with Trump pulled about 3.1 million viewers, which is still less than Tucker was getting just on a regular night. So it shows there's some reticent of people even to go to CNN. And 
Anderson Cooper, whose time slot that usually is, was pulling in usually less than a million. Anyway, when so they pretty much tripled their ratings with Trump, and they still are taking a real beating. And that's what I wanted to talk about was it's not so much what Trump said, and I thought he did a good job. I mean, there was a little upselling there. You know, he has that bravado, and I thought that he was a little a little thin when they kept asking about the Ukraine. Remember, he said he was he could end it in a day, and he didn't really follow through how that might happen. And I could see that maybe he has some ideas. You don't want to throw them out there now. But when they asked him if he want, who he wanted to win, you know, if one of the Ukraine or Russia to win, this was just a trap, of course. Because remember, the media is all in for the Ukraine. Remember, especially people like CNN. It's glory to the Ukraine all day. And if you go back and look how this started, remember that they, they sort of started this out like the support of Ukraine against the Russians and Putin was sort of like a proxy war against Trump. Remember how that was coming across? I mean, because they convinced themselves that somehow Trump was, you know, in league with Putin and this and that. And so, you know, if they're fighting Putin or somehow fighting Trump. That was kind of the vibe in the beginning. Now they're just all in. You know, they, they once the lemmings start hurling themselves to the cliff, they don't stop. And, of course, they still see Trump as some sort of enemy, and they love painting him as some kind of Putin puppet, despite the fact that he was a lot harder on Putin than any of the prior presidents since, well, even Bush. And he had plenty of opportunities to go soft on them, never did. Remember it was Obama that was the one that told uh, you know, the former president to tell of Russia uh, to tell Vladimir that after the election, this was around 2012, remember, he would be able to do a little bit more, right? And we had that on a hot mic. That's just forgotten. It's for, who cares about that? But what was interesting about the debate beyond, you know, I, like I said, Trump did a really good job and CNN were just not on their game to begin with. I mean, they had the town hall was Republican independent voters. I think they really believe that everybody are, is like them somehow and hates Trump and just anybody let the door pretty much that wasn't, you know, wearing a MAGA hat and uh, carrying an AR-15 and uh, pulling up in a, a truck with a bunch of flags on it was going to uh, were going to be against Trump. And, of course, that's not what happened. Uh, most of the people in there were kind of on his side. And then the more Caitlin Collins attacked him and argued with him and just pretty much, you know, wanted to wrestle him then people got more on his side. And the fact that they cheered him and booed her or laughed at her, they didn't really boo her, they laughed at her a lot, just made the left furious. So I started looking at all of the stuff that came out in the left news sites and so forth. And I even managed to watch a little bit of the analysis after it on CNN. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't watch very much of it because really I... You know, I don't want to waste any brain cells. And I felt like watching their analysis was somehow destroying brain cells. It's like drinking a lot of grain alcohol. That was a feeling I was getting. It was it was hysterical, nincompoops, shouting. They were really upset. And they were upset, I think, because it went so badly in the sense that Trump wasn't humiliated, that he got a lot of his points across. Caitlin Collins looked very unprofessional and like she just hates him and wanted to fight with him all the time. And the crowd really bothered them that they, you know, cheered Trump and laughed at her. They were just beside themselves. So I started looking at some more of the left's websites, and I don't recommend it too often because 
it's psychically damaging. And you don't want to end up in the same sort of unhappy outlook about the world and uh, just this angry tribalism that you see out there when you get to their websites too much. But what they wanted to have happen was what was really interesting. A couple of the media commentators on the left out there said, well, CNN did a bad job because they weren't prepared for Trump. So I thought, okay, what do you mean prepared for Trump? It's town hall. You get a few questions of your own, and then the people are supposed to ask, right? What they wanted with this media person, and this was reflected in other places on the left, too, they wanted them to have graphics. They wanted them to have recordings of him talking and things in Georgia, and they wanted essentially... This was not supposed to be a town hall at all. This was supposed to be sort of a hostage situation. He was supposed to sit there, and they were just supposed to berate him with bad stuff about him and force him to answer questions that they had already slanted in a way that there was no real answer to. It was really interesting to see how they wanted this to go. And it was had nothing to do with being a town hall, had nothing to do with other people asking questions, Nothing to do with the voters. It had to do with them trapping him and then throwing a lot of stuff at him that they'd pre-taped, cut up, and wanted to force him to answer on their turf and in their terms. Really interesting. It shows you what's going on with those guys. Trump did a good job. Man, made them mad. They're just like a bunch of hornets out there. Hey, thanks, folks, for hanging on a little bit here. We're back again. Uh, we are with a guest that I managed to snag who was uh, foolish enough to agree to talk to me. I think you'd all agree that's always a mistake. Uh, but uh, it's Mitch Morrissey, and he is, well, he's working with the Common Sense Institute over there. And we've talked about some of their work uh, here in Colorado a couple of times. And Mitch was the, well, he worked in the 2nd Judicial District, which is Denver, the city and county of Denver, since I think 83 as a prosecutor. And he was the elected prosecutor. What was it, 2005? Is that when you were elected, Mitch? That's exactly when I was elected, 2005, Rick. And, uh, you know, so he's still with us. He didn't uh, suffer the expected nervous breakdown that you would think when you're the district attorney in Denver. But so he's managed to hold himself together. And uh, he's doing some really interesting work in cold cases and also in analyzing some crime trends in Colorado. And I wanted to have him on because, and I mentioned this before in the show, but, you know, Colorado is leading the nation in auto thefts, which is you feel like a big question mark floats over your head, like a cartoon, when you think, well, like, why is that? So that's one of the things we want to talk about. So thank you for joining us here, Mitch. And uh, talk to us a little bit about what Colorado, and, and to the extent that you can, you know, our western slope over here, and this auto theft thing. Well, uh, thanks for having me on, first of all, Rick. For a while there, we were finding that the policy makers and the people that were leading this state were either ignoring this or just trying to like it wasn't happening because as long as we've been doing these studies, Colorado has been number one in the nation in auto thefts. And just to give you an example, uh, Denver is one of the worst places when it comes to auto thefts. Um, there were 15,000 cars stolen in Denver. And if you think about it, there are a lot of Bronco fans I know completely across your listening audience. You could fill the Bronco parking lots for a home game three times over for that that many cars. The number one spot where cars are stolen in the state is in the DIA neighborhood, so basically the largest airport where obviously there's a lot of cars there. So, you know, but it's not just a Denver problem. What we 
did most recently is we looked at the economic consequences of the increase of motor vehicle theft. And we took what's called the REMI model, which is a, is a model, is a system that you can plug in things about policy and you can see how that policy is impacting things like the increase in motor vehicle insurance premiums, jobs across the state, the reduction in personal income, those kinds of things are what come out when you look at that model. And when we plugged in auto theft and the increase in auto thefts, and what we saw trending in Colorado was this increase really started in 2014 and has continued 2019, 2020, it really started to spike. And these were all things that were done by the Colorado legislature. Now they say, well, certain cars are easier to steal these days. You can learn how to steal a car if you go on YouTube, that type of thing. But Kias and Hyundais mainly. You, right. When you decriminalize a crime, uh, you've got to give the criminals some credit. They're going to go out and do what they need to do, but they're going to do it with the least amount of, of exposure that they can have. So if you make the value of a certain car a misdemeanor, they're going to target those misdemeanors that they can. They're not stealing the car to drive around for status, that type of thing. They're going to use it in another crime. They're going to go pull a burglary with that car. They're going to go pull a robbery with that car. They may break into a house, steal the keys, and steal another car in the process of leaving with the loot that they take from the home. Uh, Those are the kinds of things that go on with professional auto thieves. Our goal was to start talking about auto theft, costing the people of Colorado an awful lot, and try to get things changed. And the good news is that they did increase the penalties again for auto theft just this year in the legislature. So it really, to us, was kind of rewarding because it appeared that people were listening to what we've been saying for the last couple of years, and that is that you need to go back Look at the unintended consequences of the things that you've been doing in the criminal justice arena and adjust those things. And we saw it with fentanyl, you know, this deadly drug that they made a misdemeanor for you to have under four grams of. Well, that can kill an awful lot of people. And it's not appropriate for fentanyl to be a misdemeanor of any amount because a very small amount of fentanyl can kill you. You know, I have 30-year-old kids, and both of my children have had friends that have overdosed on fentanyl, accidentally, but died. One of them was a, had a brand-new baby. I mean, it was just, it, it just, I just can't believe that that kind of thing is going on with the generation below me and a generation below that that these people are being exposed to this drug and that type of thing. And there's people in our legislature that think that that should be a misdemeanor to possess enough to kill a a thousand people, 5,000 people. I I just think that kind of policy is wrong thinking. And we were trying to get the word out that it was. Now, of course, they ended up last year, they compromised. They didn't make it a felony. But, you know, if you have dynamite in this state, if you have certain poisons in this state, automatically, uh, machine gun, automatically felony. 
because it's just so dangerous. And that is what we were seeing about fentanyl. But even then, they still compromised and came up with this law that made some of it a misdemeanor. And if you were claiming you were just a user, you know, just you know what it's like to go into court and have to have to show those kinds of elements. Right. I don't know you, if that law was You don't all, often be able to do that. I mean, it used to be you could talk about you know, the amount and packaging and things like that to show that they were selling, but it gets harder all the time. So we do have people, though. My point, and I know I get down in the weeds sometimes, but the point is that things need to be looked at in terms of the unintended consequences of them and then adjust it and adjust those things like fentanyl like auto theft that are having this devastating impact and a very expensive impact on the people that live in our state. Well, I think you, you pointed something out to me when we were talking earlier, um, you know, when we were getting, you know, trying to set up this, this interview was that, you know, if you're going to lock people up, it costs the state money. And right. so there's the philosophical thing about letting everybody go that we see these days. And then there's the other way of just let's not spend any money on prisons. Let's spend it on other things, many things we probably right. would disagree with. And if there's no money to lock someone up, you just keep reducing the crime until it's not a responsibility of the state. Uh, you stick it back into the county jails or you just let them loose. And that well, doesn't let me, work. Let me tell you that. I was district attorney still when the tragedy of the Aurora theater shooting happened. And there was a, like often there is, there was a backlash in the legislature about that. And we're going to get tough on crime. We're going to pass some, the red flag law passed. I think it's a good law, but you know, the number of bullets that you could put in a magazine and all of those kinds of things. And I talked to the sponsor. And I said, listen, you want to get tough on crime, do two things. One, make felon with a gun a serious felony or have mandatory prison time. That will send a message to criminals that are felons to not bring their guns out on the street. Because if they don't have their guns, they don't use their guns. And the feds had shown while I was a district attorney that if you were tough, if you took the cases to them where they had a tough felon with a gun statute in places where they had programs like that, the gun crime went down. So make it a serious crime. The other thing is that people that sell guns to kids, straw sellers of guns where there's straw purchases, those weren't going along a lot in my jurisdiction. But what was happening in my jurisdiction was those guns that were purchased in those illegal sales were being used on the streets of Denver. I said, give me jurisdiction to go after the guy that sold that kid a gun, that sold that felon a gun. Give me jurisdiction. Because if you write a bad check down there in Grand Junction and it comes through a Denver bank, I had jurisdiction along with the DA down there, but I could prosecute that case because it touched Denver. So I said, when those guns touch Denver and someone gets shot, robbed, killed, give me jurisdiction to go after the guy that sold it. And with all honesty, the senator that was running the bill, he eventually 
got um, taken out of office on a recall. He said, Mitch, those would be felonies. We can't pass any felonies. Well, let me ask you here because we, be we, we only got about 30 seconds more. But, I mean, think what you're talking yeah. about because people are going to, I think, get pick up wrong on this. What you're talking about is going after the seller is someone who sells a firearm knowing that the person who's getting the firearm should not possess it, right? Right. It's out. Right. It's out. Well, they're selling a gun out in the out in the out. I mean, you're selling it to a 16 year old kid, or you're selling it to somebody you know is a convicted burglar, or convicted robber. And but when they honestly will tell you they cannot pass a felony because that would cost the state money, then you know they're not serious about crime, and they're serious about passing the burden of those costs right. onto the counties which they house the misdemeanor okay. offenders that get convicted. And okay, we're, gonna, we're, we're getting pulled out here by the music, Mitch. I appreciate it. Hang oh, on a okay. second, and we'll be back, everybody. Hi, folks. We're back. <laughs> Thanks a lot for sticking with me. Hey, that was, a I thought, an interesting segment we had with Mitch Morrissey there uh, on what's going on in, well, in Colorado, and the rest of you listening in other states and places, if you don't think this kind of stuff is going on, just because we managed to snag the top spot, you're pretty proud of it, yeah, top spot in auto thefts, in Colorado doesn't mean this kind of nonsense isn't going on in your state. And by that is, if you listen to what Mitch was saying, and I had a chance to have a conversation with him on Friday to talk about you know getting him on the show, and I got a little bit more background too, but and I didn't bring this out probably as much as I should have. A lot of this is because of these reductions, and I think he made this fairly clear, reductions in criminal consequences for this kind of stuff. They've been dinking around with auto theft for a while, probably last eight or nine years, to try and knock it down. A lot of what you used to think it might be a felony or serious auto theft is now just all misdemeanors. It's essentially they've tried to turn it into joyriding. Crooks, like, they're not stupid. I mean, some of them might be, but they do recognize that if there's no consequences or any serious consequences of this stuff, they're much more likely to do these things. And it's not joyriding anymore where somebody would steal a car and, you know, go out and joy. It still happens. Don't get me wrong. But much of this has to do with using vehicles in commission of other crimes. You know, like he said, uh, you use it in a burglary. You use it in a robbery. Uh, you use it uh, in a smash and grab of some sort. You want the vehicle for that. A lot of this is, of course, forced on the criminals. Because, for instance, if I want to borrow your car, I mean, I, to to run to, say, a convenience store at night when it's closed, crash through the front of the building and drag off the ATM, I mean, I don't want to use my car. You know, first of all, I need my car. And secondly, as I, you know, I people would figure out who it was. And if I asked to borrow your car, you're probably not going to let me do it. So essentially, you're forcing me to steal a car, right? I mean, you know, who, where am I going to go? I got to steal a car. So they're stealing cars for those kinds of things because it's convenient and it's a very low probability of being caught. And if you're prosecuted, it's just not that big a deal right now. So it goes up and up and up. There's also the idea, too, that a lot of these vehicles have components. I want to say parts, but it's really components that taken off the vehicle is worth as much or more than the car is or pretty easy to get out and get a lot of money. Your airbags are worth a lot of money. Some of those airbags are worth 1500 bucks. A catalytic converters, other parts, you know, the uh, ECU unit units, the stuff like that. You can, you can be out there 
and have a whole lot of value in that car that you're not aware of that someone can take and rip it out of there and just sell it and then leave the car, you know, stripped alongside of the road. Say nothing about tires and wheels, and we all know how that goes. So if you're going to make the actual theft of the vehicle pretty much nothing, and a lot of people out there that are stealing these things, hey, they already got a criminal history. In the old days, you know, 10, 12 years ago, you know, back in, back way back when, you know, before the wheel, if you had a criminal history, that meant you got more prison time or more things happened to you. Now that doesn't seem to matter anymore. Your criminal history is just, yeah, well, you know, so he's made mistakes before. Let's let uh, give him another shot. So that doesn't make much difference. And so getting any kind of criminal record for these guys that have had multiple offenses in the past, having another misdemeanor, or even a low-grade felony that they're not going to do any time on, what difference does it make to them? You don't have that momentum anymore. It used to be that you had some momentum with serious crimes, and that is that you kept doing them, you get increasing consequences, and eventually you got really serious consequences. You got you know life or 10 to 30 years or something like that. That's gone away. And I think we touched on this a tiny bit in the discussion, and that is that nobody wants to pay for this. Their legislature has other priorities than your personal safety. They don't want to pay for the cops. Think how much they don't want to pay for prisons. We don't hear as much about that, but but think about that for a minute. How much do you think they want to pay for a prison? These guys in the legislature, they want to let everybody go for everything anyway. What What do you think about that? Well, of course. They're not going to pay for prisons. And the best way to keep people out of prisons is to make things what? Legal. And, of course, legalizing things or decriminalizing them or making them all misdemeanors or petty offenses is a good way to keep people out of the state system. Now, eventually, they end up in the counties or, in some cases, the city jails, but that's not the legislature's problems. And the legislature are the ones that make the serious felonies, or really almost all the crimes, except for ordinances that cities may have. So when they're doing that, they're pushing the cost of crime away from the state and imposing it on you, and not just in a monetary way, but in just in a safety way. And what can you do about it? Because these things happen anymore without you even finding out until it's done. We talk about that all the time here. But what, what he was trying to say, what Mitch was trying to say, was that when they increased penalties, they managed to get the legislature this last year, despite all of the you know insanity they went through in general, but they did mess around and make some of this auto theft stuff a little bit more difficult on the offender. But it needs to be a lot more so. And I can tell you the other thing that you can just rely on, is that auto theft, property crimes, burglaries, auto prowls, stuff like that, are also related to drugs. Not a great insight, is it? But people who are doing a lot of drugs, even today's world where you seem to get money for nothing, in some of these instances from the the social welfare net, then still not enough. Drugs cost money. Drug dealers want money. They're not in the business of providing a social welfare net for people like, oh, you don't have any money? Well, let's see if we can do a sliding scale for you to get some drugs. Now, that's not how it works. So they need money to buy drugs. And so the more drugs that are involved, the more people that fall into drug addiction and hence, and consequently fall out of the labor market because of they falling into the drug addiction, 
it's kind of like a, a double drop, then they need to get some money someplace. And whatever money they get from their, oh, their unemployment or their PPP or their COVID funds or their reparations or whatever it is that people think they're getting money from out there, eventually they'll burn through that. Because what you know is if you're addicted to drugs enough, you never get enough. That you always want more. So you run out of money. What do you do when you run out of money? We have to make it some way. And now you're no longer employable in any sense of the word. So you steal and you shoplift. This is the problem of these huge shoplifting problems in the major cities now. A lot of it is drug related. They want money. They can steal $500 worth of stuff and sell to somebody for 50 bucks or maybe $75 or something like that and then roll right back and get some more. As soon as they come down, as soon as they get that, and they go get high, and when they come down, they're right back at it again. So there's a vicious cycle that goes on in these situations. So when you legalize drugs, decriminalize drugs, or like Morrissey was saying, you things like fentanyl, you make it a misdemeanor to have four ounces of the stuff. I mean, who knows how many people you kill with that? Probably yourself would be the first person you're going to kill with that. When you do things like that, you're asking not only for more drug-related deaths, drug-related crime, because people that are really high and don't know what they're doing often make very bad choices about things and harm other people because of that. In addition, of course, you get all of the theft, burglaries, shoplifting, all these other things that are associated with gathering the money that you need to support that habit. So it is a expanding area of criminality when drugs become more and more prevalent. Because you can't get rid of crime. This is something libertarians, and there's some of you out there possibly that think this, but if you legalize drugs, you say, fine, you can have whatever drugs you want. You think that's going to solve the criminal problem? Where are they going to get the money for these drugs? What are they going to do to, are you going to give them away? Because they're going to want more all the time. You're going to give them, you're going to ration some out? That's not going to work. They'll want more than the ration. And who's going to get involved in distributing? I mean, is that next? Are we distributing, we're distributing needles and crack pipes and stuff. I guess it's not too far down the road. Stop and think about the next step. Okay. All these drugs are legal. Yeah. 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 How do we keep their price down? So far, we haven't had any success with that. We've tried that with marijuana. Cannabis in places like Colorado and other states have legalized it, have still have a very serious illegal drug market. Why is that? Because the state taxes this stuff. So the price is so high that it's still much cheaper to get it from a dealer, an illegal dealer. And now you have the added bonus that once you make the transaction and walk out the door, you're free and clear. Nobody's going to find that marijuana on you, and how are they going to know you didn't buy it from a legitimate dealer and pay your sales tax on it? Is the next step perhaps to uh, require through legislation that if you have marijuana, you have to have your sales slip along with you? Is that is that what it's going to I mean, that's just not going to work either. So they still have a thriving underground uh, market for that at a cheaper rate because they don't charge any tax and the tax is very high because once there's something that people think they want or the legislature thinks people want, they want to tax it. We see that in all kinds of stuff. You want housing? 
Well, a lot of people want housing. Well, we better start putting some sort of development codes in there and collect money for that. And this, we'll, we'll say it so development pays its own way and we're going to do affordable housing and we're going to do all these. And of course, that's just, it's just money. You have to understand when people collect money, it's because they want the money. They don't want to do what they say with it. If they do, it's a very secondary purpose. When someone says it's not about the money, it's about what they're going to use it for, it's always about the money. And they're going to use it for what they want, not what they say. So they can't keep their hands off of it. And as a consequence of that, the price of drugs goes way up. And the black market, which is essentially the illegal drug trade, is very thriving. It doesn't matter what you're doing that with. If if you raise the price on bread, you will have an illegal bread black market. Because people will be able to make it and sell it at a higher profit and still be cheaper than the artificial price that high taxes places on goods. Always works that way. So if you legalize drugs, do you think that the government would keep their fingers out of it? They wouldn't start taxing it? Well, it's all legal, but yeah, we have to tax it to, you know, uh, you know, take care of ourselves or to, uh, what I always love is we need to tax it to address the problems with it. Well, if there's all these problems with it, why did you legalize it to begin with? So I'm sorry, but that doesn't hold up for me. But so you make it legal. Make it, well, so what do you, is it going to be free? Because if it's not free, you're never going to get rid of all these other attendant crimes, are you? You're never going to get rid of all the property crimes we just talked about that they need to get money to buy drugs. So just because they're legal doesn't mean you get rid of all this stuff. You may get rid of some of this crime that surrounds it, but now you've created a whole bigger group of people who think it's great because it's not even illegal to use these drugs. If they were held back before because it was illegal, well, they're not held back anymore. And there are some people that may have actually thought they were bad for them, which is why the government said that they couldn't have them. And now they figure, well, the government says I can have them and they must be safe. So you're going to get a lot more people, and people are going to get addicted. And when they get addicted, they're no longer productive. So you not only have all of this criminal behavior out here that will be associated with trying to get money to buy these now legal drugs, but you're going to have more and more people that are not productive in the workforce, like we don't have enough of that already. You're going to have people that drop out of the workforce just like we talk. Drop into drugs, drop out of the workforce. So how does that help anybody? And it just doesn't it just cause more problems? And whose personal freedom are we really worried about here? All of the people are going to be victimized by higher degree of criminal activity because of all the drugs out there? To get things stolen to buy them? That have to pay more for everything because they can't get workers? Uh, have to put up with criminal activity because people are out of their minds on drugs. It's it's something to consider. I'm not going to tell you any answer here because I think people have arguments all over the place about it, and then some of them have merit. But you better consider all pieces of it if you're going to start putting that stuff out there. And along those same lines, and I'm looking for it here because I put it up on our website, and you can read a lot of these stories on our website at therickwagnershow.com. You can also get our podcast directly there, and I have to even go through any of the uh, streaming services on it. But there was a study that was just recently done about uh, the high degree of connection between today's marijuana, the strong, and we've talked a little bit about this before. Um, yeah, here we go. I'll put this up. 
Nearly one-third of schizophrenia cases in young men linked to heavy marijuana use, a study found. And we've talked about this many times. A lot of these people who don't think marijuana is so bad, understandable, are thinking back, particularly if they're a little older, they're thinking back, well, when I was in college in the 80s, you know, I smoked little pots, other people did, didn't hurt anybody that bad, they're getting high, you know, they go out and eat too much at uh, the Taco Bell or something. I think that's that's not what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about marijuana that has a much higher THC content. The tetrahydrocannabinol in marijuana these days is is composed of maybe 7 to 10% in those days, is 30 to 50%, sometimes even higher. It's the result of a serious effort on the part of growers in states where it is legal, and states where it isn't even for that matter, to be able to do cross-pollination and genetically alter plants to have a higher THC content so they can sell it for more, so they can have better competition in the marketplace. It is, to some extent, capitalism. So what you're getting is incredibly high THC contents over what was available even 15 years ago. And this very high THC content is much more damaging to certain functions in the brain. It isn't just fun. It's it's like anything else. Too much is too much. So too much THC is too much for people to handle in many cases. About a third of the people, according to this one study, are having very bad, long-lasting psychological effects from heavy marijuana use. It's not one time around. It's people who are using this stuff all the time, get extremely high, THC is very strong, and it affects them very badly and leads to long-term consequences. It's very damaging to them, damaging to society. And people don't want to listen. Regular people kind of want to listen, but the decision makers don't. Two factors that I think leap to mind. One, there's tremendous amount of money in drugs. Duh. Legalized drugs. Illegal, too. I think you find many, many times, I wouldn't, I would not be surprised that people who are in the legal marijuana trade either started off <laughs> in the not so legal piece of it or have a component on the other side, but who knows. But I'm just, that's just guesswork on my part. I think it's just an educated guess. Nevertheless, there's, you know, no matter how you want to look at it, there's a terrific amount of money in that. Money flows into politics in a way that influences policy. Once again, big surprise. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm telling you guys things you don't know. So there, there's now a lot of money supporting the idea of keeping marijuana legal. It's also a lot of money in supporting the idea of keeping the amount of marijuana in your system for driving under the influence of drugs at a fairly, I think, untested level. That's where we're at anyway. That's just my feeling. And then there's the natural desire on the part of government of all sorts to make money off something. I mean, the first big syntax that we people were more aware of was, of course, the lottery, right? Remember, I mean, many people forget that there was a lot of controversy the lottery because it's essentially gambling, right? <laughs> it's the old numbers racket. Remember the numbers racket? You'd see that in the old gangster movies, you know, that people would choose numbers and bet on those numbers with their bookies and, you know, the Lucianos of the world and guys like that, and they could win money, and it was gambling. And it was just gambling for the per- the casual gambler, right? The numbers racket. Well, that's what the lottery is. And 
there was a lot of pushback when they were first trying to make state lotteries that was encouraging gambling. Well, that was overridden by the intense desire for the states to have another source of revenue. So, although really the first sin taxes were the huge taxes on tobacco and uh, alcohol, which we still have, by the way. You know that you recognize that tobacco taxes have gone just crazy. There's still very high taxes on alcohol, particularly um, like alcohol, like whiskeys, things like that. Uh, half of the price of that bottle might be tax. But this thing with the drugs is just too appealing for people in the legislatures. It's It seems like easy money. People want it. Uh, you sound like the old Al Capone. Remember Al Capone said that he supplied a, uh, I'm paraphrasing him, that all he ever did was supply what people wanted, right? Well, the legislature is beginning to sound like that. So they can't turn loose of it either. Now they've gotten their, their noses in the trough of drug revenue from taxation, even though it's, it's continuing to cause, their high taxation is continuing to cause black market and illegal sales, they can't get their nose out of the trough. And then they're supported by the people in the industry. Hey, if you're in an industry and you're making a lot of money, that's, you're going to support people that are on your side. Doesn't make evil, just makes you, just, it's just business. And the legislature made it a legitimate business. So it's on their plate. It's more on the legislature's plate than the guys that are doing it because the legislature set it up. They set the con up and, you know, these guys are just, they're just following the road the legislature set down. So as they do this, it creates a continuous problem. Look, look at how this builds up. There's, there's no real controls over, over the amount of THC, at least in Colorado and I don't think in many other states that have legalized it. There's not really oversight on it. There's a little bit of testing, but not very much. I mean, your, anything you buy in the drugstore, aspirin, Tylenol, Aleve, whatever the case might be, has had a lot more testing than a a vial of uh, you know a purple haze that you might buy at a dispensary uh, or some sort of edible in terms of the quantity of THC and how it's made you know and people are okay with that and the legislature doesn't want to mess with it much because it doesn't seem to be as much in their interest. Well, here's the problem: the interest of the legislature should be in you, right? That's the difference. It should be interested in keeping you safe, keeping your taxes reasonable, protecting you, providing what you pay your taxes for, and making sure that the rights that you give up to be in this contract with government are properly respected and not just use the power that you give to them as a way to accumulate more money and more authority over you and everything else. I think that's it. We'll be back next week.